They're here, the 96-week data on high dose of Flibercept in wet AMD. How closely did the 96-week results match those at 48 weeks? I'm Scott Criswanis here with Greg Notstein, and this is New Retina Radio from Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. Professor Jean-Francois Korobelnik stops by to review the 96-week data from Pulsar. How many wet AMD patients could be extended to 16, 20, or even 24-week intervals? And Dr. Lloyd Clark joins the podcast to discuss home-based OCT-guided management of wet AMD. How does home OCT fit into a patient's life? And how might it shape the future of care? Keep it here to find out. High dose of Libercept is approved by the US FDA, and retina specialists are eager for as much data as they can get their hands on. To learn more about how high dose of Libercept interacts with wet AMD, we turn to the 96-week results of the Pulsar study. Professor Jean-Francois Korobelnik presented the Pulsar data on behalf of the study investigators at AAO this year. He joins us today. Professor Korobelnik is a professor of ophthalmology and the head of the Department of Ophthalmology at the Bordeaux University Hospital. Professor Korobelnik, welcome to New Retina Radio. Well, thank you very much for contacting me, and I will be very happy to discuss those results with you and the audience. The Pulsar study addressed 8 milligram of Flibercept in patients with wet AMD. How was the study structured? Well, the Pulsar study is a very large, multicenter, randomized, double-masked study in patients with a treatment-naive, wet, age-related macular degeneration. The patients were randomly assigned one-to-one-to-one to to receive the following doses and regimens. They could receive either 2 mg aflibercept every 8 weeks, 8 mg aflibercept every 12 weeks, or 8 mg aflibercept every 16 weeks. All these treatment regimens followed three monthly injections before undergoing an extension to 8, 12, or 16 weeks. The primary endpoint is the mean change in BCVA at week 48, and the end of the study is at 96 weeks, and this is what we are going to discuss. The extension through week 156 weeks will be assessed later. When patients were randomly assigned to their dosing regimens and treatment arms, were they locked into those regimens or could they have their interval and their dose adjusted? Well, they could be adjusted. There is a difference between year one and year two, but the adjustment was based on the treatment interval. The patients remain on the same dose, that is two or eight milligram, that they were uh, originally received irrespective of disease response. So during year one and two, the intervals could be shortened if patients met pre-specified functional and anatomic criteria that is mainly on OCT and BCVA. The minimum dosing interval was every eight weeks for all the patients. During year two, the patient intervals could be lengthened if pre-specified functional and anatomic criteria were met, that's once again BCVA and OCT evaluation. The dosing was extended in four-week intervals out to Q24 weeks. 
I see. Before we get to how many patients met those extension and shortening criteria, I'd like to hear about the functional and anatomic outcomes at week 96. Well, these outcomes were very interesting and positive because we found that each dosing level and interval were non-inferior to each other at week 96 for both function and anatomy. The least square mean changes in BCVA from baseline were plus 6.6 to plus 5.9 letters at week 96 for all arms. The least square mean changes in the central thickness from baseline were minus 136 microns to 147 microns at week 96. Let's examine the portions of the study that are most unique relative to other studies like it, which were the percentage of patients who reached Q16 week, Q20 week, or even Q24 week intervals. What did you and your colleagues find? Yeah, the, the results of this extension were very interesting and very positive when you think about the burden of the disease. So we looked at both the last completed dosing interval and the last assigned dosing interval. So among those randomly assigned to high dose aflibercept, 8 milligram aflibercept every 12 weeks at baseline, we found that 31% of the last completed intervals was Q20 weeks, and 87% of the last completed intervals were at least Q12 weeks, which is the same as baseline interval. And we found also that the last assigned intervals were at least Q12 weeks in 87% of the patients. And what about those patients who were randomly assigned to high dose of Lipercept every 16 weeks? Well, among those randomly assigned to the high-dose 8 mg of Fibrocept every 16 weeks at baseline, we found that 48% of the last completed intervals was Q20 weeks, 79% of the last completed intervals were at least Q16 weeks, and 78% of the last assigned intervals were at least Q16 weeks. So this is extremely positive. The 53% uh, of the last assigned interval was at least Q20 weeks in the arms that started at Q16 weeks on high-dose interval. So this Q20 weeks or longer is something very new, very specific of the Pulsar study. Yeah, these are a lot of data points, and I wonder if you could summarize them for us. They're best displayed visually, but over a podcast, it's difficult sometimes What's the most succinct way to summarize these data for our listeners? Yeah, I agree. Too many numbers can be confusing. <laughs> Let's make things simple. Among those that were assigned to the IDOS 8 milligram of Fibrocept, half of them, almost 50%, were assigned to at least 20-week intervals by week 96. Half of them. And among those assigned to the IDOS 8 milligram of Fibrocept, Q12 or Q16, three quarters, almost 75% of those patients maintained or extended their original assigned dosing regimen. So this is opening really a new perspective for those patients to lower the burden of the disease. We always wrap up discussions like these with questions about safety. Did you and your colleagues find anything noteworthy? 
Yeah, of course, we are all very concerned about safety and specifically local safety. We found in the Pulsar trial that the safety profile of the high dose of Flibercept was absolutely similar to that of the two milligram of Flibercept. And this is something that is very, very reassuring. I want to ask one more question before we wrap up. I'm curious how your colleagues might use these data in a real-world clinical setting. Do you see your colleagues extending out to 20 or even 24 weeks with high dose of Flibercept? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. I think there are two options. One is to extend up to 20, 24 weeks interval. That would be very helpful for some patients. But the other way to look at the results is to see that many more patients a higher proportion of patients will reach Q12. And that's good. Instead of, I don't know, 20-30%, it will be 70% that will reach the Q12 weeks. So this is something that is making 12 weeks interval available and something safe with good efficacy for many more patients as compared to what we are using today. I see. That's great context. Professor Korobelnik, thank you for joining us on New Retina Radio. Thank you so much for asking and uh, see you soon. OCT guided management of wet AMD is nothing new. But home-based OCT-guided management of wet AMD could represent a significant shift in the burden of treatment and create a landscape for more personalized medicine. Dr. Lloyd Clark presented data from a study on this topic at this year's AAO annual meeting, and he's joining us today to tell us more. Dr. Clark practices at the Palmetto Retina Center in Columbia, South Carolina. Dr. Clark, welcome to New Retina Radio. Well, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So we've tried a daily OCT monitoring in the past, correct? Yeah. So this device, I mean, it's obviously you could do daily OCT monitoring in the clinic with OCT uh, devices that are homed in the clinic, but it'd be very, you know, obviously it'd be very labor intensive. Patients wouldn't want to come in every day. Um, We now have a device that can be distributed into the home setting for patients that can obtain reliable three by three millimeter spectral domain OCT images. And so this this device was initially uh, evaluated um, in a cohort of patients just as an observational tool to look at the fluid dynamics between office visits. But to date, uh, this home OCT, OCT device has not been used to make treatment decisions. And then how does it work? Is the patient prescribed this device? Do they buy it themselves? Walk me through that process. Yeah, so at this point, the home OCT device is actually not cleared by the FDA for commercial use. So it's still an investigational device. But but how we sort of perceive this uh, commercialized into the into the greater population is that the physician would prescribe the home OCT device to a patient that fit the appropriate criteria. The device would be reimbursed um, by their uh, insurance company or by Medicare. The device would then be delivered to the patient. There'd be a quick sc- uh, training program. And then the patient's um, device would sort of uh, would, would uh, obtain a home, a home doctor that would be in, in charge of, of evaluating the images and would be a, a, in charge of making treatment recommendations based on the device. That that physician would be sort of the physician of record. And in that case, 
what's likely to happen is that physician would receive some sort of monthly uh, monitoring uh, uh, reimbursement in order to uh, in order to provide the guidance and the accountability for this. Now, of course, this is all still very much in sort of uh, in, in negotiation in terms of the best way to do it. And certainly uh, these discussions are beginning, but are very much ongoing with payers. But in general, the patient would, would get the device. The physician would monitor the data that comes from the device. And is the physician monitoring uh, daily image, meaning that they're performing image analysis every day, or is there some intermediary between the patient and the provider? Well, one of the cool things about this platform as it stands currently is that there's tremendous opportunity for variability in how the physician manages the, the data. In fact, the physician could, in fact, review the images daily, but obviously that would be very uh, time consuming. Um, the, the way that the, the, the platform is designed is it's paired with an artificial intelligence platform that evaluates the images for the presence or absence of fluid, both intraretinal fluid and subretinal fluid. And so ideally, the way this device will be used is the, the clinician will set fluid parameters um, in the platform for each individual patient. And then the uh, the AI platform will evaluate the images on a daily basis because we we recommend that patients check their OCT on a daily basis. And then if those parameters are triggered, then a triggering notification by email would come to the doctor. Um, we, you can also set time parameters. So, for example, in our study that we'll talk about in a few minutes, we had fluid parameters set that were very, very uh, subtle and picked up subclinical recurrences. But we also had seven-day uh, triggers as well. So regardless of whether or not there was disease activity, we were still asked to evaluate the data every seven days. And so the, the platform can do either. Let's get to that study that you presented in San Francisco. Give us the top-line view here. Right. So we, in three centers, we, uh, we got 15 machines. And we were asked to identify patients in various stages of uh, of AMD management, give them a device, ask them to image their both eyes in most cases, but ask them to image their eyes daily. And we followed them for a six month period. And so um, we we each each of the three investigators enrolled five patients. They had a variety of different clinical characteristics, had a variety of different medications they were on. Even one patient had a uh, ranibizumab port delivery device implanted in the eye. Regardless of their uh, their initial treatment uh, regimen, they were they were given a machine. They were scanned on average six days a week, and we were brought we brought them in if they met certain clinical triggers. We evaluated their images every seven days, and then we also brought them in for three and six month visits. In essence, what we were attempting to do is to take these fifteen patients that were on a wide variety of different treatment intervals on different drugs and convert them to an as-needed dosing schedule. And in the past, we used to use as-needed or PRN dosing, and we found inferior treatment outcomes. But the, the premise with the OCT is that if we use very, very uh, subtle uh, retreatment criteria, small amounts of fluid, we should be able to identify activity before there's any threat to vision. And so um, sort of implicit in this whole idea is to only bring the patients in when they had a small amount of recurrence by OCT. And then what did you find in those follow-ups? Right. So the, the two big, the two big uh, outcome measures that we looked at in our study was the change in treatment burden and the change in visual acuity. 
In terms of treatment burden, the mean interval between injections at, at uh, initiation of the trial was, was eight weeks. So on average, our patients got an injection every eight weeks. The clinician had determined that that was a safe interval. Once we gave the patients uh, a home OCT and had them evaluate their eyes daily, at six months, the treatment interval had increased from a mean of eight weeks to a mean of 15.3 weeks. So almost a doubling of the treatment interval just over a six month period of time. Well, that's certainly very exciting uh, data when you, you consider that you can reduce treatment burden significantly for the patient, for the payers that are paying for these very expensive medications. But what happens with vision? Uh, you know, we, we, we've known from a number of PRN clinical trials in the past that yes, you can do PRN therapy, but without uh, uh, technology or, di or diagnostic um, uh, advancement such as this, patients lose vision with as-needed therapy. Over a six-month period, the mean change in vision was 0, 0.00 letters. There was no change in visual acuity in our cohort of 15 uh, patients, 27 eyes. So, um, so we were able to double the treatment interval and not have any change in visual acuity over a six-month period. So this is an exploratory study for sure but very exciting data. Did patients actually use the device? Oh yeah, patients were very happy with the device. You know, we asked them to screen themselves every day and on average, um, they, they averaged um, in the first three months, I believe it was 6.1 per week. And over the course of the entire study, it was 6.4 images per week. Um, the, the, the study, the, the device requires no in-person training. Um, you know, we, we had the device delivered to patients. They did an uh, over-the-phone uh, setup, an over-the-phone training period with someone from uh, the manufacturer, and were able to adequately uh, get uh, uh, images almost every day. Uh, so patients were very happy with it, and they stuck with the evaluations. How important or relevant were the visits that were triggered by the home OCT during this six-month study? Did the patients actually need to come in, or were these some false alarms? Right. So we, we generally would set um, parameters of 10 nanoliters of intraretinal fluid, 10 nanoliters of subretinal fluid, or a total of 20 nanoliters of fluid total in the three by three uh, millimeter uh, scan. So these are very, very small amounts of fluid. Over a six-month study, 40 visits among the 15 patients were triggered by fluid parameters. So 40 times the investigator got an email and said, listen, you need to bring this patient in because they've met uh, fluid criteria based on a home OCT monitoring. And that's three days in a row. So if you have one day, and that was actually an interesting aside, we, we saw a number of patients where they would have, they would reach the threshold of fluid for a day or maybe two days and then drop below and their fluid would resolve. It was very interesting fluid dynamics. Um, and and it, we've got a lot to learn in terms of fluid dynamics in these patients. A lot happens between office visits for sure. But back to the question, um, we, we got a total of 40 uh, visits triggered by fluid. And of those 40, only one, uh, one visit was not substantiated by in-clinic-based OCT. And that was because the patient had uh, a significant cataract. Um, and, and so 39 of the 40 visits triggered with fluid had fluid uh, by OCT in the clinic. Of those 40 visits, um, 37 of those visits resulted in treatment of the eye. And the total of uh, three cases, the, the physician determined that the fluid was not uh, clinically significant enough to warrant therapy. But 
the the take home is that the the uh, the return on these visits was very very high. There were very very few false positives, and we know that um, from previous studies that the accuracy of this device is extremely high. So this was very encouraging. That in fact, in the small number of patients over a short, for a relatively short period of time, we're still able to make significant um, uh, treatment outcome decisions and reduce treatment burden. You mentioned earlier that patients went from a mean eight weeks of treatment interval to a mean 15.3 weeks, but there were actually four patients whose interval decreased while they That's were right. using home OCT. Yeah. What What do you make of those patients? Well, you know, sometimes we get it wrong, right? And, um, you know, so there's a number of reasons why that could be the case. Perhaps, the you know, we'd like to believe that we all are perfect in terms of uh, making treatment decisions, but sometimes we're not. Sometimes we see patients have inexplicable worsening of their disease despite fixed interval treatment. You know, sometimes the disease doesn't cooperate, right? And so that's that's another one. Yeah, the other thing that's interesting, and I, it gets back to my comment earlier, is I think there's a lot that goes on in terms of fluid dynamics between visits that we don't understand. We've seen a number of very interesting scenarios that we'll likely expand on in future, future meetings where these patients had almost inexplicable changes in their fluid dynamics. But What's nice about this is that this is a great example of personalized medicine. Obviously, we're interested in increasing the treatment intervals, and for the vast majority of patients, we were able to, but it's also very encouraging for patients that apparently were undertreated or at least had periods of increased disease activity. We were actually able to detect those and respond in an appropriate manner. So this is, a, to me, a, a, an, an early but a step towards real personalized medicine and what AMD management. Yeah, it really sounds like it. I'm curious where you see it fitting into the real world. So would you target like particular patient populations, patients with particular baseline characteristics, maybe patients who live, I don't know, 50 miles away from the clinic? Who's the best population to roll this out in? Well, I think all those people are, are certainly a good option. So I think that for me to today, first of all, it's really only been studied in patients with wet AMD. I think other indications, this has tremendous utility as well in terms of patients with diabetic macular edema, retinal vein occlusion. I think we'll be able to do similar things with other indications and stay tuned for more evaluations there. But in terms of patients with wet AMD, again, I think that the initial good target population are patients that have stable disease, they're, they're quiet, they're dry, uh, they're, and, and they're at an interval that could potentially be extended. Um, they are able to, um, to handle the technology, which appears to be fairly easy to use. Um, and so I think the group of patients is quite broad. I think anyone that's had a good response to anti-VEGF therapy so that you've got a dry macula is an excellent candidate for this. Um, in terms of um, sort of non-clinical factors, I think you raise a good point about um, uh, proximity to retina practices, certainly patients that have to travel a long way. This is certainly a very exciting option for them. Patients that have mobility problems and uh, have a difficult time getting to the office, that's certainly exciting as well. And then, you know, the final group of patients here is, is patients that are beginning to use uh, next generation uh, therapeutics, things like drugs with extended dosing intervals, um, uh, uh, implantable devices that have longer treatment intervals, even gene therapy. It, the, the idea, at least to me, of pairing this type of technology 
with uh, uh, with therapeutics that last longer really uh, enhances the idea of reducing treatment burden. So I think this really has the potential to to go hand in hand with some of the next generation therapies. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. This is exciting stuff. Dr. Clark, thanks for joining us on New Retina Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Enjoyed it very much. That concludes our Late Breakers coverage of the AAO 2023 annual meeting. But don't worry, we have more content from San Francisco coming your way soon. Make sure you get that content by subscribing to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. 